Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the top priority of MAG and Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker, which is to serve his benefactors by cutting taxes on the rich. Johnson's first act is to gut the IRS so they can't collect revenues from wealthy tax cheats. In the name of reducing the deficit, House Republicans propose cutting the IRS by the same amount destined for Israel, which is a non-starter with the Senate and White House, and will result in an increase in the deficit. Joining us to discuss how this will impact the IRS and whether there is a strategy here is Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. Then we'll go to Israel to speak with Gershom Gorenberg, an historian and journalist who has been covering Middle Eastern affairs for more than 35 years, a columnist for the Washington Post and a senior correspondent for the American Prospect. His books include The Unmaking of Israel, The Accidental Empire, The End of Days, Shalom, Friend, The Life and Legacy of Yitzhak Rabin, the winner of the National Jewish Book Award, and most recently, War of Shadows, Codebreaker Spies and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East. He joins us to describe what he saw yesterday inside the burned and desecrated homes in which Hamas terrorists butchered Israeli families. Then finally, we'll get an update on the $250 million fraud trial brought by the New York Attorney General, which has found the Trump Organization liable for fraud in exaggerating assets to get better bank loans and lower insurance premiums. Joining us is Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar and professor of law at the Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, white-collar crime and corruption. She has testified as a banking law expert before Congress, and her latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. The host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub, we will discuss Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony. And joining us now is Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. Welcome to Background Briefing, Edward McCaffrey. Great to be here, Ian, as always. Well, thanks for joining us, Ed. And the first move by the new Speaker of the People's House, Maga Mike Johnson, is to tie funding for Israel to cutting the same amount of money from the IRS, uh, from the IRA, Biden's signature achievement, the Inflation Reduction Act, which gave $80 billion to the IRS to improve their ability to get revenues from wealthy tax cheats and also make the filing easier for ordinary citizens. So what do you make of that extraordinary priority that $14.3 billion in emergency funding for Israel is now tied to taking the same amount out of the IRS funding from the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, well, it's really shocking. It's shocking, but it's not shocking. Um, So, you know, many of your listeners may, may, they may not recall, because this is relatively obscure, we have, you know, wars in Ukraine, and of course, in, in the Middle East, and we've got a 
a border crisis and we've still got lingering COVID. And, you know, there are a million things that that, you know, the House of Representatives could be focused on. But if we go back to 2022 and when the Republicans took over the House uh, in, in the 2022 election and we got at least briefly Kevin McCarthy replacing Nancy Pelosi, the first priority then was to cut some of the $80 billion that, as you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act, that climate control bill, the biggest, the, the relic of Build Back Better, the most significant legislative achievement of Biden's first term, uh, $80 billion for IRS enforcement. Most of that kind of catch-up money, the IRS budget has been in real terms decline for a decade or more. They're woefully underfunded. They're not able to keep up meaningful audit rates among the wealthy. So we had $80 billion. We've already cut it by $20 billion because the House under McCarthy held the debt resolution, the ability of the government to borrow hostage so we lobbed off $20 billion. And now the very next moment, really, that the House has had leverage. Uh, people need something. The, the administration, the Democratic senators, the, the American people, the world, the state of Israel, the cause of fighting terrorism have a desperate need. That gives leverage to House Republicans, and the go-to move is to cut the IRS. The, the Republicans in the House are not simply cutting the IRS budget. They're micro-targeting dollars that were allocated to greater enforcement among the wealthy, greater enforcement among people with $400,000 or more of income per year, and then a program that would help middle-class Americans skip a step and not have to prepare their own tax returns or pay for an online service or an accountant to do it. So this shows us the Republican priorities. I think what's really interesting is that they think this is going to work. They think that this is, I don't know if they think it's going to work in terms of Will the administration back down and actually cut the funding now? But the Republicans think it's it's a political winner. The Republicans think that the IRS as an enforcement agency is so wildly hated that people are willing to cut its funding to audit other people. Uh, th th this money allocated to the IRS is 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 scored as raising money. It's a money revenue generating move by the government. Hey, the rich people are getting away with cheating. We spend a dollar on trying to get them to cheat less. We will collect maybe as much as five dollars. We could make money to serve other social needs. But the Republicans are so opposed to it and are counting on an American people being so politically opposed to it that they can hold hostage. They feel, you know, politically empowered to hold money for Israel 
you know, following the, the greatest death of Israeli citizens, of, of Jewish people since the Holocaust, they can withhold money from Israel's defense needs uh, in order to, to keep the IRS at a woefully underfunded state and in order to continue to allow uh, the wealthiest Americans to evade taxes. It, it's really a a stunning picture of where the Republican Party is in terms of of substance. What would they do if they were in power? Clearly, they would gut the IRS uh, before they did anything else. It, 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 it It's almost like you couldn't write a movie script that would make for a party so mismatched uh, with with sensible, good government priorities than the Republican Party is now in the House. But Ed, they seem to be counting on ignorance of the American people because it's so counterintuitive and so stupid that you would cut the ability of the IRS to collect revenues and do so in the name of reducing the deficit. I mean, it's going to increase the deficit. It's so obvious. So that's the part of it. Is there any way that you, you can educate the people that their republics are appealing to that who hate the IRS um, and hate government, etc., with the facts? I mean, is this, is this another example of alternative facts? Well, I, I, I think it is alternative facts. I mean, to be a little fairer to the American people, I think they're busy and they're not paying much attention. And uh, you, what you see with the Republicans generally going going back, you know, even before Trump, the Republicans are the party of fear. They're they're motivated by fear. They're motivated by hatred. Uh, they hate immigrants. They hate uh, the situation at the border. They hate affirmative action. Um, they're very, they're very sort of negative that way. So they're generally negative on the deep state. Certainly, we saw Trump make a lot of hay out of just a, nobody really quite knows who the deep state is, but that the deep state is bad. That we should dismantle the deep state. And in that context of all the government agencies that people hate, just at a you know quick five-second view of the matter, the IRS ranks very large. I remember Frank Luntz, who's a Republican pollster, uh, used to poll people on would they rather be mugged or audited by the IRS, and overwhelmingly the mugged response. People would rather be mugged. They'd, they'd rather be they'd rather be robbed by a a stranger at gunpoint on the street than audited by the IRS. So it's not it's not rational, uh, but it's a sense that one of the worst things in life is to be audited by the IRS. Now, the fact of the matter, ironically. Uh, more lower income people get audited. People get audited because they have some foot fault and the computer thinks they have too many dependents or or they're not really married or there's earned income tax credit fraud. The kinds of mistakes that, you know, ordinary folk like you and me and make, they're easy for a computer to catch. The rich people make quote unquote mistakes that require more time and more effort. But I think what we see is the Republicans capitalizing. I mean, remember, 
we we started with the tax revolt. We're, we're nobody nobody remembers what the revenues from the Boston Tea Party were supposed to be providing. Everybody remembers that they were trying to tax us without representation. We we hate taxes. We we hate the IRS. We hate audits. Uh, now, ironically, again, your theme, Ian, I think a lot of this is irrational because when you don't let the government tax through an individuated system like the income tax, a system that requires at the margins human beings to help enforce, well, what do you get? You get a whole bunch of hidden taxes. You get payroll taxes. You get taxes on gasoline, cigarettes, cell phones, food, all sorts of things that are easy for computers to collect, that don't require audits, that people never notice. So I think they're capitalizing if you you had one symbol for the deep state. You wanted to have one symbolic act in which you killed the uh, deep state. It would be dismantling the IRS. And of course, Republicans have had bills to do that, just standalone bills to repeal the IRS as if if we didn't do anything else but just got rid of the IRS somehow the world would be a better place. So I, I, I agree with you that it's self-harming. This is money that would raise money. Uh, this would help 99% of Americans. But of course, 90 very high percentages of Americans are opposed to the estate tax. They're opposed to wealth taxes on, on the rich. They're opposed to increasing audit rates among the rich. So it's a visceral, deeply American hatred of tax collectors, back to you know the Bible and its hatred of tax collectors. It's a deep hatred of tax collectors that kind of gets in the way of a more reflective thinking about what's going on and what these exact dollars were meant to do. Well, just in the last minute though, it also exposes the priorities of the new House Speaker, who said when he got the gavel that his first priority was to help Israel, and now he's tying Israel's aid to basically cutting the taxes on the wealthy, which just shows the fealty that Mike Johnson and the Republicans have to taking care of the wealthy. But also in the IRS cuts that they're talking about is an attempt on the part of the IRS to actually be helpful to the American taxpayer by making it easier to file electronically and meaning that, of course, the lobbyists for H&R Block and TurboTax and others and all the accountants, etc., are, are weighing in on the Republicans to say, you know, you can't possibly let the American people save money by having a simple uh, electronic filing that's free f via the IRS instead of giving money to H&R Block. Yeah, which gets around to the other beneficiary of really both prongs of, of this IRS cut, which is Republican campaign contributions. So, so we have a moment where the Republicans need to do something. We, we've spent the last month in which the Republicans didn't have to do anything, so they kind of screwed around with who their leader was going to be. And they literally shut down the House because they couldn't elect uh, a speaker. 
So now that we have a quote unquote functional house with a quote unquote functional majority, they can do something. What is it they need to do? Well, they need to fund Israel. They need to fund Ukraine. They need to fund Israel. They need to do that quickly. There, there are lives at stake. There's a war at stake. So Republicans need to do that. So Republicans now have leverage. The world is waiting for a green light, a thumbs up on additional funding for both Israel and Ukraine. Of course, they're trying to separate them. So what do Republicans do? Well, two prongs to it. One, they go to their old rhetorical standby and just dump on the IRS, just dump on the deep state, just wave the flag of negativity. But the other thing they're doing is they're lining their pockets. They're finding a way to make money. The, po the politicians are finding a way to make money off Israel's need for these defense expenditures. So obviously, their wealthy donors, the Koch brothers crowd, the, the generic Republican billionaires like the late Sheldon Adelson, who just hate anything having that starts with a T for tax. Uh, obviously, they're very supportive of this. And then, Ian, as you just mentioned, what might otherwise be a pretty obscure program, uh, you know, not not a program that should bother any Americans, uh, an opportunity to have your forms filled out for free, not a requirement, just a choice. Hey, Americans, you don't want to pay H&R Block. You don't want to hire your own accountant. These forms are complicated. The IRS will prepare a draft of your tax reform for you for free. No harm, no foul. Well, the IRS wants to or the Republicans want to cut that, too. And why would they want to cut that? Because TurboTax and H&R Block and, and uh, Tax Slayer, uh, you get to football season, you see in, in college football, all these college football ball games that are named after tax software, you know, the TurboTax Bowl, the Tax Slayer Bowl, those companies are making a lot of money charging Americans to fill out their tax forms, roping them into upselling them in, giving them a tax return for free, but then selling them products they don't need, like loans and IRAs and other high fee products. So because there's a scam going on, which is generating a lot of money, some of that money going to Congress to keep the scam going. And in order to get money for Israel, the Republicans and our elected Republicans in the House of Representatives are saying, you better not hurt the upper class tax cheaters, protect tax cheaters, and don't help ordinary American taxpayers, or you're not going to get a nickel to fight, you know, injustice and 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 hatred and terrorism. Um, I, it, it's a nutty world we're in. It it it. It, it, it's some dystopian world in which a blind hatred of, of the IRS and, and tax has become more important to some of our politicians than fighting evil. Um, kind of shocking.
Well, Ed McCaffrey, I thank you very much for joining us here today. No, I, I thank you for bringing topics like this to our attention because it, it's easy for this to slip under the radar, but it shouldn't. I mean, they Republicans have power. Their having power gives them a moment to show us what they're about, to show us what their priorities are. Now that they finally have their act together, have a functioning you know, House of Representatives with the majority, what are they going to do? And what they're going to do is screw the middle class by, by gutting the IRS and allowing their wealthy tax-cheating contributors to, to live another decade um, without an audit. And again, I've been speaking with Edwin McCaffrey, who is the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Israel to speak with an historian and journalist who will describe what he saw yesterday inside the burned and desecrated homes in which Hamas terrorists butchered Israeli families. I met one man who was wounded in love I met another man who was wounded in hatred And it's hard, it's hard, it's hard It's hard, it's hard Rains are gonna fall Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Israel is Gershom Gorenberg, an historian and journalist who has been covering Middle Eastern affairs for more than 35 years, a columnist for The Washington Post and a senior correspondent for The American Prospect. His books include The Unmaking of Israel, The Accidental Empire, The End of Days, Shalom, Friend, The Life and Legacy of Yitzhak Rabin winner of the National Jewish Book Award, and most recently, War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gershom Gorenberg. Uh, thank you. And you had a recent piece of, at the uh, Prospect, Gershom, how West Bank settlers led to the conflict in Gaza. I'd like to talk to you about that, obviously, but yesterday you visited the site of the massacre on October the 7th, so describe to us uh, what you saw, if you will. I know it's painful, but... Um, it... Well, I will try my best to do so. I have to say I've been a journalist for 40 years, and uh, this was the most difficult day of reporting that I've had. Um, we went down to Kibbutz Be'eri, which is uh, five kilometers, three miles from... The border with Gaza. It was one of the first places uh, struck on the morning of October 7th when the wave of Hamas terrorists entered Israel. Uh, when you come into the, into the kibbutz, it 
you know, your first impression is you're in this beautiful rural spot, small bungalows, the usual lush uh, landscaping of, of the kibbutz. Um, you can still hear the birds chirping. We got out and started walking through the, uh, through the village and coming to destroyed houses, uh, very often burnt out, um, clearly burnt out from inside. Um, I, I should also say, even though the corpses have uh, been uh, removed by now, um, there's still a scent of, of, of bodies of death lingering in the air uh, of the kibbutz. Um, uh, the total population of the area, I should note, uh, I was told was between 11 and 1200 people of whom 87 were murdered that morning and at least 30 are missing. Some of them apparently hostages in Gaza, others perhaps simply among the corpses that still have not been identified because they were so badly disfigured. You walk into what was a house, you see the remnants of normal life on the one hand, the photographs on the wall, you know, the children's toys, uh, the computer table with the with the monitor and the keyboard on it, and the rubble of uh, collapsed roofs, um, the walls stained by fire. It's very obvious from the way that the fire has gone that the fire began inside the house. This isn't, you know, it's not the fire of like um, house being burnt down in a in a wildfire or something like that. It came from the house being lit inside because the fire damage is much worse on the inside than on the outside. Um, house after house was was set on fire um, when the first responders came in to clear to to deal with the bodies. Uh, many, many of the bodies were um, were completely burnt. Uh, you know, the whole families had been burnt alive inside the houses. Uh, each house in a place like this near the Gaza border has a um, secure room, a room with uh, heavier concrete walls um, and ceiling and a heavy metal door, which is where the residents go when there is a uh, uh, when the siren goes off and says that there are incoming rockets. It's also where the families took refuge as soon as they realized that you know what was going on that morning. Um, in house after house, we saw that the doors of the uh, secure room had been shot open. Um, in the houses nearest the place, the, the parts of the fence that were originally broken through on the um, western side of the kibbutz, there's a, there's a fence going all the way around the kibbutz. Uh, it was uh, the, the terrace broke through in two or three spots um, in the nearest houses to that corner. You can see on the outer wall um, dozens, at least dozens, perhaps hundreds of, of um, bullet pits in the outer wall. Um, clearly somebody firing automatic weapon on automatic, just the spray of, of, of bullets. Um, inside of, uh, of a, um, very often people use the secure room, you know, it's one room of the house, so it's also a bedroom very often, the children's room, that way the children are already in the secure room. Um, 
blood-stained mattresses in, in one house that we went into. Um, Ian, this is really difficult. So, I, I, well, well, let, let us. Um, uh, let me let me try to go on. Um, outside on the wooden deck outside the house, there's a huge brown black stain on the floor. Lying in the middle of the stain are two kitchen knives, a cleaver, and a hammer. Uh, at this particular, and then we went into the house next to the front door. There's another dried pool of what was obviously a very large amount of blood with another kitchen knife sitting in it in the secure room again where the it had been shot open to get to the family living inside uh, hiding inside there are mattresses uh stained with blood it's it's clear that the uh that the entire family must have been um killed some of them with the utensils of their own household or perhaps utensils stolen from a previous household that was that was attacked um i, I could go on and on it's sure. it's um it's the it's a scene of of of, of horror um this the signs of of uh murder of the deliberate uh murder of of uh, people in their homes of, of families is everywhere what isn't there anymore, of course, because this has been uh, cleared up, you know, the bodies have been removed. Um, the first responders found um, and, and the uh, forensic experts afterwards who examined the bodies found very clear signs of rape as well. It, it's, it's uh, I mean, I know that people who have read about this it's hard to describe what it is like to see it. Um, I decided to go there despite the fact that I knew it would be horrifying because I felt that as a as a journalist, I had a responsibility to see and, and to give witness. It's, um, it, it's a scene of, of unspeakable cruelty. I don't know whether, Gershom, you've heard some of the... Uh intercepts of phone calls from the Hamas killers calling their families and friends back in Gaza as they were murdering? Well, there was one phone call that was recorded in which somebody is bragging, uh, using actually the phone of one of the people he killed, if I remember correctly, that he's bragging that he's a hero because he's killed 10 Jews. Right. That's the um, one I was referring to, yeah. Yeah. Now I, I know, but but what was most disturbing about that, though, Gershom, to, to, to my point of view, was that he he was calling his parents, and every time he told them about how many Jews he killed, the parents would say, "God is great. God is great." So, yeah, I I would also note two things about this that are seemingly contradictory, but but they're not. On the one hand, um, they refer to their victims as Jews, not not as Israelis. The first thing that is clear is that their goal was to set out was to kill and to sow terror and horror among Jews as Jews, um, and that anybody was a victim. There's no um, aim here of of uh, striking at a military. This certainly isn't part of. This is inside Israel proper. It's not part of the occupation. 
Um, one of the other scenes that I visited uh, was the scene of the uh, desert dance party, the rave, where the terrorists surrounded the apparently several thousand people who had come out for this you know, party in the desert, surrounded them and started firing. Um, you can still see the remains of the party, you know, the sleeping bags and the and everything, and hundreds of people were were uh, killed there, and some of them were taken hostage back to uh, back to Gaza. So it was absolutely clear that they were aiming to uh, murder civilians. It, along with that, you know, what I said about Jews is the fact that they also didn't discriminate in that effect. They killed Israeli Arabs that they uh, that they found. They killed um, uh, foreign workers who were here to work on on the the farmlands of the of the kibbutzim. It was um, it, it was a completely indiscriminate uh, murder. So Geshem Gromberg, tell me about the broader impact that this has had on Israeli society. And then we're we're told that a part of the motivation for the military response in Gaza is to re-establish deterrence. How much has a kind of social contract between Israel and its military been broken? Well, um, it's, it's a little bit difficult for me to switch gears here, but I'll, I'll try to respond to that. Um, I think that there's a, a frustration that, uh, uh, intense disappointment that, uh, that once again, there was a, a failure of intelligence and a failure to, uh, have forces at the right spot. You know, a lot of information has come out that, um, in a, in a truly eerie repetition, a repeat echo of the um, way that Israel was taken as surprise 50 years ago in the Yom Kippur War, that uh, uh, information that should have been put together into a picture to show that, that there was going to be attack um, was ignored or misunderstood because there was a preconception that uh, Hamas was under control and was only concerned with the economic issues within the, the Gaza Strip, a, a preconception that was completely false. Um, at the same time, I would say that most of that, I mean, it's, it's difficult, you know, I always tell people, uh, you know, I'm, I'm asked, what do the Israelis think about something? And my response always is, I, I don't know the Israelis. I know some Israelis, right? I mean, judging what the mood of an entire country is, I, I don't know. What what would you say if I asked you, what do the Americans think about something? Um, well, there's clearly no, no consensus in this country about what's even real and true. So, Right. So, But what I would say is that, that overall, the sense of, of uh, anger, is much more directed at uh, the political leadership and particularly at Prime Minister Netanyahu than it is at the military. The sense is that the failure came from the top down and that it was Netanyahu's uh, misconception that you could just keep managing this that was, and his lack of attention after all these years of claiming to be Mr. Security, his lack of attention to security issues, that's the real disappointment. The polling shows a much higher degree of confidence in the military than in a, than in the uh, political leadership. I would say that the 
other side of this is that the strongest response within Israeli society has been the civil response, the immediate organization for volunteer efforts um, that, in a fascinating fashion, came out of the very pro-democracy protest organizations that had come into being in the first nine months of this year in um, opposition to Netanyahu's attempts to change the system of government here. These huge organizations with, uh, with WhatsApp and social media networks um, and really skilled organizers uh, running them turned their attention on the first night of the war from protest to organizing relief efforts, um, helping families, uh, uh, getting um, donations of everything to help the families evacuated from the conflict areas, both on the border around Gaza and on the Lebanese border. There's over 100,000 Israelis who are essentially refugees inside the country. Um, it, I visited uh, the logistics center of, of, the, of the largest uh, one of these um, civil organizations uh, in, in Tel Aviv a week ago. The central organization, uh, at sort of the spine of setting up this, this relief effort was the protest organization of army reservists known as Brothers in Arms, which had been very active in the protest movement. They immediately turned their efforts to philanthropy. They took over a huge um, parking garage and have turned it into a place where people bring donations. Everything is sorted. It's sent out again. Um, it includes things like putting together packages to send to packages of, of chairs and food and and coffee urns and and refreshments to send to families that are in mourning so that they can receive uh, visitors who have come to console them without having to put out any effort themselves uh, to do that, which are being sent out families around the country. Um, simply a, a, a kind of organization that you would expect it would take months or years to put together came to, came together overnight. So civil society has organized in this astounding way and the government still seems to be um, uh, detached, uh, fumbling, not connected. So that's why there's greater uh, confidence in parts of society uh, other than the government. I, I would say also, um, I, I actually, my reading of, of, uh, of what's been going on in terms of the actual fighting, the military conflict, um, and, and I'm going to, before I say more, I, I have to say, um, it, our armies don't reveal all their plans to the public. Um, as, as a historian, I know that you learn what plans are and what uh, strategies were, or the lack of strategies only years and decades later when papers are declassified. So this influences the way that I look at immediate news reports. But my impression is that the idea of deterrence is not the central aspect of the campaign. The central aspect of the campaign is to uh, directly weaken or destroy Hamas's ability to attack again. That is to say, to attack Hamas as a military organization um, 
so that it cannot strike Israel like this again. The idea of deterrence, of living side by side with the military organization, which was the um, basis of Netanyahu's failed strategy, I think has, has gone by the wayside. The problem, and, and here I'm going to connect up to what I said about the scene at Barry, the, the problem that um, Israel faces in this respect is that Hamas has built its military bases literally underneath, beneath the ground of the civilian communities of the Gaza Strip. There's a lot of talk in Israel about the fact that Hamas is holding 240 uh, approximately Israelis and foreigners as hostages in Gaza. But when you look three-dimensionally at what's going on in Gaza, essentially Hamas is holding two million Palestinians hostage in Gaza because the Palestinian civilian population is being used um, is being used to to create a um, a uh, impossible choice uh, for Israel. Either it doesn't strike at Hamas and leaves open the possibility of facing another attack like this again, and, and Hamas leaders have made clear in public statements that that's what they intend, or if it strikes uh, at Hamas um, military sites, it inevitably uh, causes wide-scale civilian uh, um, uh, casualties. And in this sense, the entire Palestinian population of Gaza is being held hostage by Hamas. Well, just in closing, uh, Gershom, just to touch on your recent article, American Prospect, how the West Bank settlements led to the conflict in Gaza. This will all become clear after this operation is over, and I'm sure Netanyahu will be in trouble politically. But is there any more sort of concrete evidence that he, troops were moved from that border that would normally have protected those kibbutzes that you visited yesterday uh, to protect some settlers who went on a pilgrimage to the uh, Joseph's tomb in Nablus? Well, the army uh, has claimed that none of the battalions, the, the initial reports in Israel were that battalions had been moved directly from the Gaza border to the West Bank in recent months, not just in recent days, but in recent months. Um, there is certainly a very heightened presence of the military in the West Bank in recent months. The army has claimed that those battalions were not taken directly from the Gaza border, but that in many cases were taken from training courses. Uh, but that only deepens, that, that only makes the issue um, more uh, only illuminates it further. You're taking your military that should be um, preparing training to deal with threats, and you're removing them from from their training to protect settlers. You end up with a military that's that's less prepared to to defend the country. Uh, there certainly was a smaller than necessary military presence on the border. That's part of the illusion that Gaza did not pose an immediate threat. And on the other hand, uh, this major concentration of troops uh, in, in the West Bank. What that also reflects is the wider issue that 
this idea that Gaza could be controlled derived from Netanyahu, the, the strategic conception of Netanyahu and a, a, a much of the right wing that the conflict with the Palestinians could be managed indefinitely with Israel continuing to control the West Bank, and that the split between the more moderate pro-two-state solution Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and uh, the much more extreme uh, theocratic and uh, uh, Hamas in, in Gaza, which... Uh, refuses to countenance the idea of any diplomatic solution, that that split uh, in the eyes of the right actually worked to Israel's advantage because um, one of the major roadblocks, perhaps the most significant roadblock to a two-state process was the fact that there is no longer one voice that speaks for all the uh, Palestinians. The the reality that even if you reached an agreement with uh, President Mahmoud Abbas's Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, what about Gaza? So the right regarded that split as essentially an asset in in uh, in preventing a diplomatic process. Um, that strategy, I think, has been largely discredited. What will follow? I don't report the future. I have no idea. Um, I will only say that the outcome of a crisis like this and the public mood and as a result of a crisis like this is very volatile and can be shifted greatly by events. Um, again, I'm going to go back to, uh, uh, from a historical point of view, to the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago. I think that if at this stage, uh, after the Egyptian and Syrian attack on Israel in 1973, if you had asked Israelis uh, what about giving up the Sinai to make peace with Egypt? Uh, it's likely that almost everybody would have told you the war proves that we can't give up the Sinai. After all, the Sinai was the buffer that kept Egypt from actually entering Israel proper. Um, that viewpoint shifted 180 degrees as a result of the diplomatic process that began as the result of the war, first the shuttle diplomacy, afterwards uh, uh, the peace efforts under the Carter administration that led to a peace treaty with Egypt, to Israel's withdrawal from the Sinai, and to the peace that has uh, the peace treaty that has held firm with Egypt uh, ever since then. This is not to say to you that I'm optimistically predicting that this will end in a peace process. What I'm saying is, um, you know, what was the expression that they used to use in the Obama White House? I think it was never let a good crisis go to waste or something like that. Um, This is a crisis. Those who are interested uh, in on the world diplomatic stage, uh, certainly in Washington, who are interested in a in a two state outcome has to seize this situation to begin a, a diplomatic process because everything has been shaken up. And the possibility exists of after this uh, incredible horror and the incredible losses on both sides and um, the unspeakable loss of life, uh, the possibility exists of at least using the opportunity presented by that crisis to start the diplomatic process that... uh, 
that has been stalled for so many years. Um, that won't bring the dead back to life. It won't remove the painful memories of Kibbutz Be'eri, but at least possibly it would give some sort of um, consoling, redeeming meaning to, to these terrible events. Well, Gershom Gorenberg, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Gershom Gorenberg, who's an historian and journalist who's been covering Middle Eastern affairs for more than 35 years, a columnist for The Washington Post and a senior correspondent for The American Prospect. His books include The Unmaking of Israel, The Accidental Empire, The End of Days, Shalom, Friend, The Life and Legacy of Yitzhak Rabin which was the winner of the National Jewish Book Award, and most recently, War of Shadows, Codebreaker Spies and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East, and he joined us from Israel. We're going to take a restation break. We're back with an update on the $250 million fraud trial in New York and the testimony today from Donald Trump Jr., Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jennifer Taub, who is a legal scholar and professor of law at the Western New England School of Law, who previously taught at Harvard Law School. Her writing focuses on corporate governance, banking and financial market regulation, white-collar crime and corruption. And she has testified as a banking law expert before Congress. And the latest book is Big Dirty Money, Making White-Collar Criminals Pay, now out in paperback. And she's the host of the new podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Taub. Thanks for having me, Ian. It's always nice to speak with you. Oh, thank you, Jen. And uh, Wednesday, Donald Trump Jr. testified before the case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James in a $250 million fraud case against the Trump Organization. James has already essentially got a guilty verdict. Uh, they Essentially, the Trump Organization has been charged with frauds, and now we're talking about essentially how much the penalties are going to be on, on what has been proven that they've committed fraud for 10 years, beginning in 2011, by inflating as by as much as $2.2 billion a year in the value of the Trump Organization to get better interest rates from banks on loan deals and lower insurance premiums. So... And, of course, Donald Jr. will be back on the stand on Thursday, followed by his brother Eric, and then next week Ivanka, and then uh, Donald Trump. So what's your sense of, of of where that's heading? Not a lot came out today, Wednesday, but uh, I'm assuming that the, the weight of this is pretty... They've got a pretty strong case, in other words, the state of New York. Yeah, and I just want to clarify, I'm one of these 
law professors who can be annoyingly annoying stickler, which is to say this is a civil case. So technically speaking, we should say that uh, the organization and Donald Trump and others were found liable, not guilty of the initial fraud charges in this case. And um, what so that was under this thing called the New York executive law there. In addition to figuring out what the penalty will be in terms of how much money essentially Donald Trump will have to pay, will it be 250 million or more? There still are a couple other claims less left to be litigated. You mentioned the insurance fraud that still remains, as well as some other minor types of uh, charges again, still civil, uh, but but yeah, I mean the, the the you know the main the main thing has already been decided by this judge that there was fraud over that decade. In terms of what went down today, I guess one of the big highlights is that no one seems to know how to pronounce the word revocable, whether it's revocable or revocable. I guess folks got a laugh out of that related to this trust that was set up during Donald Trump's presidency to create the illusion that he was not uh, having a conflict of interest when he ran his business and also benefited greatly from being president by encouraging people uh, to spend money at his various properties. That was mostly an illusion. But what we learned today is that um, Donald Trump got his name put onto the trust so that he now was uh, had more control uh, over that organization, effective January 15, 2021. So at the very least, we know, based on Don Jr.'s testimony, that at least by the 15th of January, before the end of the term, he had officially acknowledged that he you know, was no longer present. Otherwise, why would he had himself put back on that trust? That seems to have created some interest in the Twitter sphere um, among lawyers and pundits that this would be useful information in the other cases. And let me just say, if his name got put back on the 15th of January, I think we would want to know when he asked his lawyers to go about doing that, because if that was going on well before uh, January 6th, I think that's very relevant. But Trump himself has appeared at this trial seven times, even though he's not required to be uh, there. So this is obviously very important to him, right? He he will lose his ability to do business in the state of New York if they rule against him. That is true. And he will lose, uh, the, not only will he lose his ability to do that, but there will be apparently, you know, assuming, you know, this is sort of on appeal, there may be this um, trustee put in place to manage his business and, you know, essentially liquidate those assets meaning the New York businesses, and to the extent that whatever equity he has in those businesses is insufficient to satisfy whatever the judgment is in this case, uh, he may lose some of his other businesses. I think what's interesting, though, too, is we're talking about these kind of legal concepts like his businesses were put in a trust, but his big business empire involves corporations and tons of these limited liability companies. And what we will also find out is, you know, who really, really are the owners? It's possible that people outside of Trump's own family uh, may have a piece of the action. And that might, we might learn a lot more uh, at the end of this case, uh, should he lose.
Right. I mean, should, should the I'm not sure he lose. He's already the the court has already ruled. But while the judgment is on appeal, they put on hold this appointment of this liquidator or receiver for now. But at the end of the day, when this makes its way through the court system and all appeals are exhausted, if these things hold, I think we're going to learn a lot more about who mm -hmm. is really pulling his strings. Right. How many Russians are involved? Um, <laughs> and the test me today from the hedge fund guy McCarty pointed out that the banks lost an estimated 168 million in potential interest because of Trump lying about his value of his assets. So we should feel sorry for banks, right? <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, you know, I think you don't need to have them, you, you know, in, in terms of things, these charges, you don't need to prove, at least the, the, the case that the judge, the, 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 uh, the uh, claims under the New York executive law, you don't have to prove anyone lost money. But it's helpful for purposes of uh, the damages that you are talking about or the disgorgement. And so if the banks lost $168 million in interest payments because he was given a better rate than he should have been based on his real net worth, that's $168 million that, it, that he would have to presumably disgorge, you know, plus the interest maybe on that money. So we're getting, you know, we're getting into the ballpark of that $250 million, right? And they're not even reaching the insurance yet. Well, I guess uh, we have to stay tuned. It's just hard to keep up, as you point out. There's, what, f <laughs> four trials, five, five, I guess, really, with Bragg as well. Right. Oh, like plus E. Jean Carroll's coming up, right? That's another one. Another one, and it looks like the trial down with a friendly judge of Trump's. She may delay the documents trial, but it's an extraordinary situation. Can I add one more thing? That's yeah. also happening. I'm sure you've already probably covered it, but there's the trial going on in Colorado over right. whether Donald Trump can be on the ballot. Plus tomorrow, um, Thursday, the I guess it's November 2nd, there's going to be the hearing at the Minnesota Supreme Court right. in the case brought by eight uh, voters. That's going to be something gripping to listen to, but also to try to uh, get him off the ballot there. So, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's really... Um, it's really astonishing how many uh, lawsuits he's embroiled in right now. Well, Jennifer Tab, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305